0: Good morning church family Uh, My name is Caden Hill I usually am up here just yelling But now I'm going to actually talk to y'all I just want to bring the word this morning We're in Acts 5 Verses 33 through 42 And when they heard this They were enraged and wanted to kill them But a Pharisee in the council Named Gamaliel, A teacher of the law held in honor By all the people Stood up and gave orders to put the men outside For a little while And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when, they had called him in the, uh, when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the, of the council, rejoining that they were uh, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Dear God, we thank you for this day, dear God. We thank you that we can rejoice in your name. We thank you that we can come together as a church family and praise you during this time. We ask that your Holy Spirit reign over this place and disperse any distractions that we might have that might keep us away from learning your word, dear God. Be with Luke as he brings your word. Speak through him and give us the knowledge and wisdom that we need to go throughout our lives, dear God. In our prayer, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thanks, Caden. Acts chapter 5, good morning um, to you. Uh, Just a little funny. Um, In our meeting this morning, we meet in here. And uh, Daniel walks us through the the worship service. Um, Sometimes Sarah gets going and we will just start saying things that aren't in the song and don't jive with the lyrics. So I just said, uh, if you say something off, I'll just get up right after and clarify. So I'm thankful. I don't have to clarify anything, Sarah. Good job this morning. It was good. We sang uh, Graves into Gardens and I'm thankful um, that the Lord can turn sinus infections into sermons, because if he can't, you're about to get a big sinus infection, okay? So they've given me freedom, so I might move over, Bo, if we can adjust the camera just a second. I don't want to bless y'all this morning, okay? So I got, uh, I've got uh, tea, water, and some cough drops, and we're going to try to get through it. All right, Acts chapter 5 is where we'll be. By the way, happy Palm Sunday to you. Amen? Next Sunday, we will be outside celebrating the fact that the God that we worship is not dead in a tomb. Jesus is alive. He is alive forevermore. And this day, although we're not looking at it specifically in our passage, we will be reminded that this is the start of Holy Week. And this is the day on Nisan 10, pretty cool, it's April 10th for us, but in the Jewish calendar on Nisan 10... This is when they would go out into the fields and they would select the lamb that they would offer for sacrifice. And it had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be a male lamb. It had to be completely unblemished. And they would keep that lamb with them for five days and then they would offer it as the sacrifice. Remembering back to Exodus 12 that when the blood was wiped on the doorpost, guess what happened? The Lord passed over. He did not pour judgment out. Not because of who was inside the house, but what was on the house. They were under the blood. And throughout this week, think about how amazing it is that there are no coincidences with God's sovereignty and his plan. The day that Israel in Jerusalem went out to select their Passover lambs was the same day the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world entered Jerusalem. And for five days, he was inspected with questions from the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and ultimately he was brought before the Sanhedrin, and he was brought before Pilate, and they could find no fault in him, right? And then on the same day that the Passover lambs were slain, he hung on a cross and bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. What an amazing thing, that in God's plan, and as we'll see a little later on, God's plan cannot be thwarted, it cannot be overthrown, and this morning Jesus is Lord and Jesus is king. We're going to be looking at the the last part of chapter 5, and Justin walked us through um, last week uh, a pretty lengthy passage. And just to bring context, remember last week we were talking about the fear of man, the fear of God. The fear of God brings freedom. The fear of man brings bondage. And all of this, this kind of second run-in with the Sanhedrin, the governing governing council of the Jews, goes back to chapter 4, verse 21. Peter and John, through the power of the Spirit, healed a dude that was lame. They get brought in, they get slapped on the wrist, and they get told, don't do this anymore. Well, they go back, they pray with the church, they get filled with the Holy Spirit, they keep declaring who Christ is. We had the episode with Ananias and Sapphira, and then, if you remember, two weeks ago, Justin walked through all these mighty works and this evangelistic fervor that characterized the church. And we're told in chapter 5, verse 17, that the high priest and all who was with him, which is particularly the Sadducees, they got jealous of these, like, nobodies. These ordinary people who had no academic or rabbinic resume to offer. They were just normal dudes, fishermen fishermen and tax collectors. I mean, come on. And they're taking over the city by storm. Through God's work. And they get jealous and they round. It's interesting here. This is all the apostles. This is the original 11 plus Matthias, who was added in replace of Judas Iscariot. And you remember how ironic it was? That the Sadducees, who don't believe in angels or spirits, God sends an angel (laughs) and lets the apostles out. Remember the irony there? And they go start preaching again. And in the next morning, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin come, and where are these apostles? And somebody says, hey, man, they're preaching in the temple. And so they go and they arrest them. And where we ended last week was Peter and the apostles, with no fear of man, with all fear of God, boldly declaring who Jesus is. Our passage this morning is really about three responses. You're going to see there's a response From the Sanhedrin to the apostles, you're going to see there's a response from Gamaliel to the Sanhedrin. And then you're going to see that even in the midst of persecution, there's a response from the apostles. You could characterize these three responses by these three words, and this is the title of the message today. Rage, caution, and joy. Rage, caution, and joy. Let's look at this first response in verse 33. When they, that is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, primarily Sadducees, a minority of Pharisees, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. We'll look back in just a moment at what enraged them, what was said that just infuriated these guys. But it's very interesting a word that Luke uses here to describe this reaction. You see, the Sanhedrin's response to the apostles and what they just said, because they preached Christ, they preached the power of the gospel, they said that God offered forgiveness and repentance, and it enraged them to the point that they wanted to murder the apostles. That's the first response this morning. is the Sanhedrin's response to the apostles, it was rage and murder. The word I want to draw your attention to is in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. The Greek word for enraged there is diaprio. It's only used twice. It's used here, and then it's used later on in chapter 7, verse 54 in the response to Stephen. We'll be there in a month or so. And literally this word means to be sawed in half. To be sawn asunder, the old King James would say. That in our terminology, it would mean that the apostles struck a nerve. You ever had stitches removed and perhaps the wound wasn't completely healed yet and the sharp object that was removing the stitches struck raw meat? Anybody ever been there? You would never do that, Dr. Deloach, right? Yeah, we just want to get that out of the way. It happened to me one time. I was a teenager and I almost came off the table where I was. Whoever did that, it was not Mark Deloach, M.D. He has better judgment than that. That person shall remain anonymous for the sake of this conversation. A sharp object touched a nerve ending and for five seconds, I was enraged. That is what is going on here and the apostles' words had literally sawed the Sanhedrin's hearts. These religious men, these men of pomp and circumstance and notoriety and popularity. These rednecks in front of them said some stuff that literally set them off. And in doing so, the Bible says in verse 33 that their response was they wanted to kill them. Now, there was no capital offense at this point. I need to use this as popping. Amen. This one. If you're new to Crosspoint, this is a regular occurrence. It's okay. All right. All right, we good? There we go. All right, I'll turn this bad boy off. So the apostles, they, they, their words, whatever they said, struck this huge nerve within the Sanhedrin. These brazen rednecks, who are they? These Galileans, who are they? And they wanted to murder them, and, This was not an appropriate response because the only thing that the apostles had done, if you go back to chapter four, verse 21, all they had done was disobey an order not to teach in the name of Jesus, which is not a capital offense. So that's why I, I have on the screen that their response was one of murder. This wasn't like execution, justified killing. They had broken the Jewish law. They had warned them not to teach in the name of Jesus and because the apostles feared God, not man, they went ahead and did it anyway. And as a result, this sinful response, we're going to murder you. See, their response revealed their rejection and their rebellion. I want to walk through this. I want us to go back to verse 28. And I want you to see where Justin ended last week. And as I listened to the message last week, I just want to make sure I wasn't going back through something, but I thought this was really interesting. Their response showed how they were rejecting and rebelling against the truth. Verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Through that conversation, and then how they respond to it, they're cut to the heart, the nerve is struck in them, and they want to kill and murder these guys without anything that is deserving of it. Guess what happens? We got a heart exam. The spiritual heart of these religious men is exposed. And guess what we find in it? Rejection and rebellion. Specifically, what were they rejecting? First, they were rejecting God's word. They were rejecting God's word. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. What you told us to do is not what God told us to do. What you're asking us to do would cause us to disobey what God said to us, isn't this interesting? All these men who had, who had so much more Old Testament in their hearts and in their minds than the apostles, right? But the apostles, knowing Jesus, with their knowledge of the scriptures, the scripture wasn't a dead letter to them, it was a living word because the word himself had become flesh and had taught them these things. And out of that rel- living relationship with Christ, Guess what? We're going to obey what God says. These religious men were rejecting what God had said, what God had said about Jesus. But they were also, secondly, rejecting their guilt. Verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter says in verse 30, God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. Apostolic preaching is always you preaching. Now, we don't like you preaching because it backs us in a corner, right? But if you go back to chapter two, Peter says, hey, y'all killed him. Chapter three, y'all killed him. Chapter four, y'all killed him. And here in chapter five, guess what? Y'all killed him. Now, we all understand that we're a part of that too. It was our sin that was punished on Christ. But what Peter is saying here, he's saying, you are guilty of the murder and the execution of the Messiah. And guess what? They didn't want none of that Gatorade. They were rejecting their guilt in seeing Jesus crucified. Third, they rejected their Messiah. Verse 31, God exalted him who Christ at his right hand as leader and Savior, all the prophecies in the Old Testament. These dudes knew all the prophecies and they knew somebody was coming. And when he comes, he's gonna fulfill Micah, he's gonna fulfill Isaiah, he's gonna fulfill Jeremiah, he's gonna fulfill Malachi, he's gonna fulfill them all. And then the one who fulfills all those prophecies shows up and guess what? They kill him. There's only one Messiah. And Peter's like, y'all killed him. You missed it. What this speaks to me here is, may my... Biblical and religious knowledge, please don't let it ever cause me to be so arrogant that God could be right in front of me and I miss it. We hide his word in our hearts. We're mighty in the scriptures. We learn the word of God. We submit to the word of God. But may that lead us to be able to recognize his work and his handiwork and his work in other people's lives and not be arrogant to think we have lock and key on the whole thing. That's what they were doing. And in doing so, they rejected the Messiah that they taught in the synagogues about every week. They also rejected repentance and forgiveness because it says here that the reason that Christ was exalted, Justin mentioned this last week, was to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is a gospel invitation. How awesome is this? He's like, dude, y'all missed it, but guess what? Jesus will still give you repentance and forgiveness. Guess what there was? It struck their nerve. Their response was, we want to kill you. Get out of here. If you reject repentance and faith, there is nothing else for you to fix your spiritual problem. Because, think about how these these work hand in hand. Repentance without faith turns from something but doesn't turn to someone. Faith without repentance is embracing someone without turning from what you trust in. You need both. You need to turn from what you're trusting in and turn to Jesus alone for salvation. That's when sins are forgiven. Because it's only in letting go what you trust in and turning and trusting to him alone can sin be forgiven. But he sums up in verse 32, notice what he says, We are witnesses to these things. That's probably one of the things that set them off most. Zero rabbis in this ragtag bunch of 12. We're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. And what Peter does in this moment, and what the apostles do in this moment, they say, listen, you're not only rejecting God's word, you not only have rejected Jesus, you not only have rejected the fact that you're guilty, you're rejecting God's offer of forgiveness to you, but you are rejecting all of God's witnesses, including God the Spirit himself. No wonder that they got to a tipping point. The apostles hit them from every angle. See, their response revealed their rejection and rebellion. Now, there's another place in Acts that Diaprio's not used, and we've already been through it. If you remember back on Peter's message at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, verse 37, you remember when Peter preached that Christ had been, God had made this Jesus whom he crucified, Lord and Christ. You remember what happened to the crowd? What, you remember that? They were, they were pierced. They were cut to the heart. But it's not this way. Diaprio isn't used. They weren't sawed in half. They were cut. They were pierced. And isn't it interesting that when the gospel is preached, there's always two responses. There are those that look to the truth and grab a hold of it and believe in it and submit their life to it. Or there are those that try to put the truth out of business and kill it and snuff it out and make it no more. And all of us in this room are either in one of those two audiences. By not making a decision about Jesus, Pilate made a decision about Jesus. And you may not be like actively like pulling a bobble up and throwing it in the air and blowing it away with a twelve gauge, or having shirts that say "I hate God's truth," but a life that is unsubmitted to who Jesus is and the Word of God and the Gospel is a life ultimately that wants the truth eradicated because your truth is your truth. That's a dangerous place to be. Can I just encourage you this morning that even now if that's you, there is an offer at the cross To come and to place your sin and your rebellion and your rejection of Jesus before him and he will forgive you and he will save you and he will deliver you and he will transform you. He will forgive you. That's the gospel. So even if you've been fighting truth in your life and don't want to submit to it and ultimately want to get rid of it, today is the day of salvation. So this is the initial response. They wanted to kill him. Thankfully, there's a second response for Peter's sake and John's sake and Thomas' sake and Matthias' sake. And the second response is Gamaliel. It's his response to the Sanhedrin. And the response is one of caution and exit. So Peter's proclamation of the truth, the apostles' proclamation of the truth, has revealed their heart in relationship to the truth. They hate the truth. They're enemies of the truth. They want the truth silenced, and they want those that preach the truth dead. And it's all about to go down right now. And Gamaliel stands up in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Seventy men on the council, Everybody wants to kill these apostles. One dude stands up and says, Y'all need to chill. Those shirts keep calm, right? You know? This is what happens Gamaliel stands up and he's pretty bold because the Bible says there that he gave orders. Y'all chill, y'all take these dudes outside, and we're gonna talk. This is pretty bold. He's the minority in the room. He would have A, been the minority because he's a Pharisee. Secondly, he's a minority because obviously he doesn't want their heads to roll right now. And he steps up and he goes, just, just hold on a minute. Take these 12 guys out and let's talk about it. Who is Gamaliel? Because this is really important to the conversation. Gamaliel was called a rabbin, which is, kind of a higher-level rabbi. He was considered a doctor of the law. He was the most respected teacher of the law in Israel at this time. His grandfather was Hillel, who wasn't called a rabbi because everybody said to call him a rabbi or a rabbin. It, wouldn't ha- it would have still been under how respected he was. He lived around the age of 100. He lived in 1st century B.C. into 1st century A.D. He founded one of the two major houses of interpretation thought regarding the law, the house of Hillel. He had 80 disciples that lived under him. He was born in Babylon and moved to Jerusalem. He was driven by a sincere devotion to know the law and to interpret it properly. He served as the head of the Sanhedrin. So his grandson, Gamaliel, when he began to study He took on the same reputation of his grandfather, Hillel. He was the greatest teacher of the law in his day, and he was called a pure Pharisee. A lot of times when we think of Pharisees, we we, we go back to the Gospels, and those are the guys that keep pushing the buttons and keep stirring up junk, and and they did. But the word Pharisee literally is is to separate or to be wholly devoted to God. This is why they kept the law in such such a, a, a very strict way. And Gamaliel was a pure Pharisee in every way. He was strictly devoted to the law. When he died, this is what was said about him in the Mishnah. Since Robin Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. We find out later in Acts 22.3 that Saul of Tarsus sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This was Saul's rabbi. This is why you see such a unbelievable knowledge of the law in Paul. This is why you see his ability in every place on his mission trips to connect. And this explains, as we'll see in a couple weeks, why he hated Christianity so much when he wasn't a Christian. Because he sat under the greatest teacher of the law. It's important for us to see this. Luke makes mention of this really quick so that we will understand what's happening. Most respected dude in the council who is theologically a minority stands up and says, y'all chill, take the apostles out. And what is his advice? Gamaliel's advice is leave the apostles alone. Leave them alone. Verse 35, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. You better take caution. You better be cautious. This isn't some trivial matter. Because especially for the Pharisees, they can't just deny the fact that a, a crippled dude got up. They can't deny what happened in chapter 5, 12 through 16, and all the miraculous things. They can't deny the fact that, that an angel, there's rumors that an angel appeared. Paul actually used this in chapter 22 in Acts to his favor. He's among, there it is, sorry. He's among the Sanhedrin and he perceives who's a Pharisee and he perceives who's a Sadducee and he starts appealing to the Pharisees. The Pharisee's like, whoa, man, maybe an angel spoke to this dude. We gotta listen to him. So Gamaliel couldn't deny these things. And so he says, y'all better leave these dudes alone. (coughs) He brings up two examples why they should leave him alone. Caden taught me how to pronounce his first guy's name, Theodos. Verse 36. Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. There's some debate about, and some of you may not care about this, I just like this because I think it's, if the text says something, let's talk about it for a minute, right? There was actually a, the, a, a Theodos that Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions but, he, but it takes place 10 years after this speech from Gamaliel, so it's not that dude. When Herod the Great died in B.C. 4, there was all kinds of just, just revolutions here and there. Somebody's standing up, dude standing up saying, let's stick it to the Romans. This is probably what happened. Theodos and his 400 homies stood up, and guess what happened? He was killed. Isn't it interesting that Gamaliel says, this guy Theodos claimed to be somebody. I mean, you know, that's just funny. I mean, that's, that's where all... Wrong things start. Y'all watch this, right? He's killed. We're told in 37 that another dude, Judas, he was from Galilee, the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. One of two censuses it's talking about. One was actually the census that why Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem. It could have been that when Quirinius was the governor. Or it could have been about 10, 12 years later, around 86 and 87, there was another census. And of course, when a census takes place, taxes are involved. And so Judas the Galilean says, we ain't got to pay them taxes. Guess what happened? His head rolled too. So Gamaliel stands up and he's like, listen, y'all need to chill. Leave these dudes alone because secondly, self-appointed saviors can never save. The situation will take care of itself. This is just gonna, if, if this guy, if these guys, these 12 guys, if they're just standing up claiming to be somebody, just y'all just chill. Like, you don't want their blood on your hands. The Jews would have needed permission anyway to kill somebody publicly like this. They had a self-appointed savior. Judas the Galilean, self-appointed savior. And what he's saying is, listen, if these guys of themselves, it's just the the reason why they're doing this is because of them, it'll fade out. It'll phase out. You just don't want to have any part of this. You see the perception of Gamaliel here, though, is that there might be a crisis in his mind wondering if Jesus of Nazareth was another theodist, if Jesus of Nazareth was another Judas the Galilean or is this an actual savior appointed not by self or by man, but by God? That's what Peter just said. This Jesus, God has appointed a savior and leader. So then he gives some advice. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, Gamaliel got it half right and he got it half wrong. The wrong part, Gamaliel was wrong because some things of man do not fail for a long time. Gamaliel kind of has it in his mind that If all of this is self-appointed and all of this is of man, it's going to fail. And kind of the way he says it is, just kind of like the other revolutionaries, they'll just come along for a few months and it'll be over with. But let me just tell you this today. I mean, we have false systems of belief in the world that have been around for a thousand years. And guess what? They're rocking along. We've got Christian, quote, Christian cults that teach a different Jesus and teach a different gospel, and they're rocking along. We've got naturalism, denies God's existence, explains matter, explains everything. That's been rocking along. We've got secular humanism where people exist for their own happiness and the chief end of everything is themselves. That's rocking along. So Gamaliel wasn't exactly right because sometimes wrong things in God's sovereignty, and I would add in God's great patience, don't crumble immediately. But the Bible does say that Christ will come back and when he comes back, he will make all things new. Hold on to that day. Hold on to that day. Sin will be judged. The enemy will be judged. Faults will be judged. Every system outside of the gospel will be judged. But he was right in this way. You can't overthrow God's plan. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. How ironic is that statement? That's what's happening right now. The God they claim to serve is the God that they are fighting against in real time. God had said, my authority doesn't rest on all these pompous Sanhedrin types who are crooked and Some, many are self-righteous. My word rests on these 12 nobodies who are witnesses to the fact that the Son of God was raised from the dead. This brings us back to Matthew chapter 16, verse eight. Hey, you're Peter, a pebble. But on this rock, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell, shall never overcome it. The gates of non-Messianic Judaism will never overcome it. The gates of literary criticism that denounce Scripture as being inspired and errant and fallible will never overcome it. Political theory and personal opinion will never overcome it. And you see, the secret of the church And if you want to be a part of a church, global, regional, and local, that never has hell overcome it, you must cling with all your heart to this fact. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He has authority. He deserves my life. He deserves my church. He deserves my obedience. John Stott says this, quite a lengthy quote, but I thought it was good to share with you. The devil has never given up the attempt to destroy the church by force. Under Nero, Christians were imprisoned and executed, including Paul and Peter. Domitian oppressed Christians who refused to pay him the divine honors, he demanded. Under him, John was exiled to Patmos. Marcus Aurelius, believing that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, turned a blind eye to severe local outbreaks of mob violence. In the third century, the persecution that had been sporadic became systematic. Under Decius, thousands died for refusing to sacrifice to the imperial name. The last persecuting emperor before the conversion of Constantine was Diocletian. He issued four edicts that were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, and Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship. And if they were unrepentant, executed. But here the early church apologist Tertullian, when he addressed the rulers of the Roman Empire, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. One bishop in 1979 in Uganda stated on the martyrdom of another minister in his country, without bleeding, the church fails to bless Persecution will refine the church, but not destroy it. And if it leads to prayer and praise, to an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and of solidarity with Christ and his sufferings, then however painful, persecution may even be welcome. You see, Gamaliel was right. You cannot overthrow God's plan. He will build his church. The final response we see is the apostles. Good thing, at the end of verse 39, y'all chill, and they do. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Sanhedrin responds in rage and a desire to murder. Gamaliel responds in caution and exit, like, let's just calm down, think through this, and let's just pull out of this situation. But the apostles respond to suffering and persecution in this way, with joy and with resolve. So they listen to Gamaliel's advice. In verse 40, they called in these apostles and they beat them. Now, what does that mean? Just for your notes, This is what comes into our mind when we think about the 40 lashes. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse three says that if a judge decided that someone needed to be punished, they could be only beaten 40 times. And at this time, the Jews had narrowed it down to 39, lest somebody forgot count along the way. I mean, that's good. If you're the guy, you get one less lash, but I mean, it just kind of speaks of the legalism, right? Of the day too. And they would do these in multiples of three. You would sit there and you would get hit by these three um, strips of cowhide. You would get hit twice on the back and then once in the front. And they would repeat that 13 times. Now, let me just make this comment so that you can think rightly about this later in the week. That was Jewish punishment, okay? Jesus was not scourged or flogged 39 times. The Romans had no Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse three. That's why many people in the flogging that Jesus endured, they would actually die like mid-flogging. So just later this week, like just keep that in your mind that nobody's keeping count when when Christ is flogged. But that's what happened to these apostles. All 12 of them were beaten 39 times and then they get warned again. See, previously they had been warned, but no beating. Sometimes... There will be a time to suffer, and that time was now for the apostles. They were beaten, and they were warned. Again, don't do this again. Sanhedrin backed up their threats this time by beating them, but notice their response. They left the presence of the council. Luke Johnson left the presence of the council complaining. Or moping, or texting people so that they would feel sorry for me. I like just, you know, sucking crud the last few days. I don't think there's a more Jones County way to say it than that. Feel sorry for yourself. You didn't get beat thirty-nine times, and what was their response? Joy. Now, that doesn't make sense. Their persecution for Christ produced joy. That doesn't make sense. And what I don't want to do at this point is to kind of take you down a yellow brick road and all there's flowers on either side and everything's okay and you just need to suck it up buttercup and think better about the situation. No. This verse does not deny what just happened. They got welts and marks and tears in their skin. They're bleeding. What I'm talking about is not some just little churchianity band-aid that we stick on our problems. Well, it'll all just get better and we just need to suck it up. No, what is happening here is that they were, check this out, experiencing what Jesus said they would experience. And in their mind, Christ was right. We'd get brought before councils and synagogues and rulers. And we at that time, we don't need to worry about what we'll say because at that point, the Holy Spirit will teach us what to say, and he's just done it. And even in their persecution, guess what they're saying? Jesus is right. Jesus is true. Man, what a crazy way to think about suffering. Persecution. He said it would happen. It's happening. But there's another side to this too. There's no way in the world you and I, naturally on our own, can have joy produced of ourselves in a situation like that. But the rest of the book of Acts, we see it happening, right? Paul and Silas get beat up in Philippi, and at midnight they're sitting in their cell praising God, singing hymns, and the other prisoners were listening. Somebody's always listening when we suffer, somebody's always listening when we're persecuted. What was the secret? Notice what it says. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were honored to suffer for Christ's name. They considered Jesus to be worthy to be suffered for. What's our view of Christ? Do we consider the fact that we would take dishonor for his name, that he would be worthy of that? Do we, do, we, do we see Jesus high enough and value enough and worthy enough in our hearts that we would consider the reproach that we take because we love him and obey him, not seeking it out, but when the world hits us like that, do we say, Jesus, the pain is real, the suffering is real, the persecution is real, but you know what, Jesus, you're worth it to me. Can I just tell you this? Just get to the end of it. He's always worth it. He's always worth it. What a crazy worldview here. They counted themselves worthy to suffer dishonor. So what did that lead them to do? It led them to resolve to do what? In verse 42, they resolved to continue proclaiming Christ every day in the temple, house to house, public, private. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, But the Sanhedrin said, dude, they beat us. Big deal. He's worthy. Let's go. But they warned you. They warned us last time. But they put you in jail. Yeah, but God sent an angel. Now, eventually in these guys' lives, an angel wouldn't be sent, right? Peter would be taken outside of Rome, and he would be crucified upside down. Thomas would be speared to death in India. Matthew would be crucified and then beheaded, church tradition tells us. But their response to suffering in every situation, if this is the end, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is the end, it's been nice, nice knowing y'all. He's worth it. Their response is amazing here. When we esteem Christ to be of supreme value, we can even have joy in the midst of our suffering. You never know what God's up to when You suffer. There's a pastor in South Asia. We'll call him Paul for the sake of this story. He was part of a ministry that had suffered severe persecution, people jailed, some people killed for Christ. The leader of that ministry is still alive to this day. And one of the things that he says is he says, What is the goal of my life? I want to die for Jesus as a martyr. And the sooner the better. What? Pastor Paul served under this ministry. He had a little church in a big city in India. Went to church that morning, was set to baptize people. In that place, in that country, in that city, baptism is the line of no return. It's the public rejection of all things of your old life, the total embracing of of your new life. He was going to baptize that day. Some religious zealots met him in the street and they said, don't go baptize. We'll beat you up. Don't do that. He went in, he preached. Came out. They faced him in the street. They beat him with sticks. He went home. The next Sunday, he showed back up. They met him and they said, don't do it. We're going to beat you. He went in, served, baptized, left. They met him in the street. They beat him again. The next Sunday he came and they said, we will kill you today. He went in, he baptized, he preached, he served, came outside. We got younger ears in here, so I don't want to go through everything, but battery acid in his mouth, punched his stomach so that he would swallow some of it. They did such a wreck to his body that later on he had to have a bag attached to his body for his intestines to work properly. He came through that and got to the place where he could walk again, and he went right back to that church. And he preached the gospel. And one of those Sundays, one of those men that tried to kill him in the street, repented and came to Christ. And that pastor, Paul, baptized that man. Why? Because he's worth it. And that's the type of legacy that we get from the book of Acts. That in all things, Jesus is worth it. When I don't feel like obeying, he's worth it. When I don't feel the love of God tangibly in my emotions, I'm going to believe what the word says because Jesus is worth it. When he asks me to do things, he's worth it. When I'm wrong and need to confess my sin to my wife or my friends or or my employer or somebody in my life, I, I do that and I obey. And I come clean because he's worth it. I love his people because he's worth it. I want to see his gospel proclaim the end of the earth because he's worth it. And that's the type of people that we're praying that God forms us into. Is That in every crossroads in our life, we say, Jesus, you're worth it. Lord, we're so thankful that you are worth it. You're the great shepherd, and sometimes though you let wolves mess with us, but God, wolves don't get the final say on your sheep. The enemy doesn't get the final say. Evil lies don't get the final say. I'm thankful, Lord, that you do. I pray, Lord, for our church this morning. I pray that we would be the type of people in all things to say Jesus is worth it. The very fact that the Son of God knows our name brings us joy. The very fact that the Son of God has committed himself to us to never leave us, he's given us his spirit, brings joy. The very fact that he's fighting sin in our life to conform us to his is brings us joy. This week, Lord, as we meditate on the fact that you were willing to bear all the wrath of God, that none was left for us. let that bring joy to our hearts. Or develop a people here at Cross Point that would say, "Jesus is worth it." So we sit before the Lord, perhaps you need to pray, perhaps you need to address some things in your own life. However, the Spirit of God has taken the Word and applied it to your heart today. You're under no obligation to to stand up when we sing. If you need to sit and pray, you can do that. If you need to stand and pray. Pastors, we're in this room. I'll be at the back if you need to talk to me or talk to me after. Love to counsel with you. Ryan will be available after the service. Paul will be available after the service if you need someone to speak to. If you need Christ today, if you've been rejecting the truth, repent and believe the gospel. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's take his word. Let's grab a hold of it. And Let's obey it for Jesus' sake. Let's stand together. Daniel, lead us, brother.